0: Welcome to Meaningful Words about and by Meaningful People. I'm Dominique Marsleck, and today we are talking about Emmeline Pankhurst. Emmeline was born on July 15th, 1858, and she passed away on June 14th, 1928. Emmeline was a British political activist. She is best remembered for organizing the UK suffragette movement and helping women win the right to vote. In 1999, Time named her as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. Freedom or Death Speech by Emmeline Pankhurst. A speech delivered at Parsons Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, on November 13, 1913, in which Pankhurst explains why the British suffrage movement has grown militant, comparing the cause of voting rights for British and American women to the fight for American independence. Catherine Houghton Hepburn. President of the Connecticut Woman Suffrage Association introduced Pankhurst, who held her listeners' rapt attention on stage. Quote Mrs. Hepburn, ladies and gentlemen, many people come to Harford to address meetings as advocates of some reform. Tonight, it is not to advocate a reform that I address a meeting in Harford. I do not come here as an advocate because whatever position the suffrage movement may occupy in the United States of America, in England, it has passed beyond the realm of advocacy, and it has entered into the sphere of practical politics. It has become the subject of revolution and civil war, and so tonight I am not here to advocate woman suffrage. American suffragists can do that very well for themselves. Rather, I am here as a soldier who has temporarily left the field of battle in order to explain. It seems strange it should have to be explained, what civil war is like when civil war is waged by women. I am not only here as a soldier temporarily absent from the field at battle. I am here, and that I think is the strangest part of my coming, I am here as a person who according to the law, courts of my country, it has been decided, is of no value to the community at all, and I am judged because of my life to be a dangerous person under sentence of penal servitude to a convict prison. So you see, there is some special interest in hearing so unusual a person address you. I dare say in the minds of many of you, you will perhaps forgive me this personal touch that I do not look either very like a soldier or very like a convict, and yet I am both. Now, first of all, I want to make you understand The inevitableness of revolution and civil war even on the part of women when you reach a certain stage in the development of a community's life. It is not at all difficult if revolutionaries come to you from Russia, if they come to you from China, or if if from any other part of the world, if they are men, to make you understand revolution in five minutes every man and every woman to understand revolutionary methods when they are adopted by men. Many of you have expressed sympathy, probably even practical sympathy, with revolutionaries in Russia. I dare say you have followed with considerable interest the story of how the Chinese revolutionary Sun Yet Sun conducted the Chinese Revolution from England. And yet I find in American newspapers there is a great deal of misunderstanding of the fact that one of the chief minds engaged in conducting the woman's revolution is, for purposes of convenience, located in Paris. It is quite easy for you to understand it would not be necessary for me to enter into explanations at all the desirability of revolution if i were a man in any of these countries even in a part of the british empire known to you as ireland if an irish revolutionary had addressed this meeting and many have addressed meetings all over the united states during the 20 or 30 years It would not be necessary for that revolutionary to explain the need of revolution beyond saying that the people of his country were denied, and by people, meaning men, were denied the right of self-government. That would explain the whole situation. If I were a man and I said to you, I come from a country which professes to have representation for all and yet denies me, a taxpayer an inhabitant of the country, representative rights, you would at once understand that human being, being a man, was justified in the adoption of revolutionary methods to get representative institutions. Since I am a woman, it is necessary in the 20th century to explain why women have adopted revolutionary methods in order to win the rights of citizenship. You see, in spite of a good idea that we hear about revolutionary methods not being necessary for American women, because American women are so well off, most of the men of the United States quite calmly acquiesce in the fact that half of the community are deprived absolutely of citizenship rights. And we women, in trying to make our case clear, always have to make as part of our argument and urge upon men in our audience the fact, a very simple fact, that women are human beings. It is quite evident you do not at all realize we are human beings. Or it would not be necessary to argue with you that women may, suffering from intolerable injustice, be driven to adopt revolutionary methods. We have, first of all, to convince you we are human beings, and I hope to be able to do that in the course of the evening before I sit down. But before doing that, I want to put a few political arguments before you, not arguments for the suffrage because I said when I opened I didn't mean to do that, but arguments for the adoption of militant methods in order to win political rights. A great many of you have been led to believe from the somewhat meager accounts you get in the newspapers, that England that in England there is a strange manifestation taking place, a new form of hysteria being swept across part of the feminist population of those isles. And this manifestation this manifestation takes the shape of irresponsible breaking of windows, burning of letters, general inconvenience to respectable, honest business people who want to attend their business. It is very irrational, you say, even if these women had sufficient intelligence to understand what they were doing and really did want the vote. They have adopted very irrational means for getting the vote. How are they going to persuade people that they ought to have the vote by breaking their windows, you say? Now, if you say that, it shows you do not understand the meaning of our revolution at all. And I want to show you that when damage is done to property, it is not done in order to convert people to women's suffrage at all. It is a practical political means, the only means we consider open to voteless persons to bring about a political situation which can only be solved by giving women the vote. Suppose the men of Harford had a grievance, and they laid their grievance before their legislature, and the legislature abstainly refused to listen to them or to remove their grievance what would be the proper and the constitutional and the practical way of getting their grievance removed well it is perfectly obvious as the next general election when the legislature is elected the men of harford in sufficient numbers would turn out that legislature and elect a new one entirely change the personnel of an obstinate legislature which would not remove their grievance It is perfectly simple and perfectly easy for voting communities to get their grievances removed if they act in combination and make an example of the legislature by changing the composition of the legislature and sending better people to take the place of those who have failed to do justice. But let the men of Harford imagine that they were not in the position of being voters at all that they were governed without their consent being obtained, that the legislature turned an absolutely deaf ear to their demands. What then would the men of Harford do? They couldn't vote the legislature out. They would have to choose. They would have to make a choice of two evils. They would either have to submit indefinitely to an unjust state of affairs, or they would have to rise up and adopt some of the antiquated means by which men in the past got their grievances remedied. We know what happened when your forefathers decided that they must have representation for taxation many, many years ago. When they felt they couldn't wait any longer, when they laid all the arguments before an obstinate British government that they could think of, and when their arguments were absolutely disregarded, when every other means had failed, they began by the Tea Party at Boston, and they went on until they had won the independence of the United States of America. This is what happened in the old days. It is perfectly evident to any logical mind that when you have got the vote, by the proper use of the vote in sufficient numbers, by combination, you can get out of any legislature whatever you want. Or if you cannot get it, you can send them about their business and choose other people who will be more attentive to your demands. But it is clear to the meanest intelligence that you, if you have not got the vote, you must either submit to laws just or unjust, administration just or unjust, or the time inevitably comes when you will revolt against that injustice and use violent means to put an end to it. That is so logically correct that we hear politicians today talk about the inherent rights of revolution and rebellion on the part of human beings suffering from intolerable justice, injustice. And in England today, we are having a situation brought about by men which exactly illustrates the case. We have got in Ireland today a very serious situation. I refer to the fact. I refer to the fact that for generations Irish agitators. Irish lawbreakers, Irish criminals who have been sentenced to long terms of imprisonment in English convict prisons, have come over to America and have asked the people of the United States to give them money, to send them help in various forms to fight the Irish Rebellion. The Irish Rebellion has at last, during the past few years, come into practical politics, and it has found shape in a measure which has now passed through the House of Commons and through the House of Lords, giving what the Irishmen so long wanted, home rule to Ireland. That is to say, next June, a Parliament is going to be set up in Dublin, an Irish Parliament, for the management of Irish affairs quite distinct from the government in London. The majority of men in Ireland desired it, presumably the majority of women acquiesced in their desire, but they were not asked whether they wished it or not. It is certain that in the course of the Irish rebellion women have taken a very prominent part, and it is rather a notable point to which I should like to call your attention, that when the imprisonments of Irish men took place in the course of their political rebellion, They were put almost invariably, after a certain amount of struggle, in the 1st Division, and were treated as political offenders. But when women helping the men got into the coils of the law, all these women in Ireland who were helping the men to get home rule were invariably treated as ordinary criminals and got ordinary criminals' treatment. You see, ladies, even in a rebellion, there is an advantage in being a voter. And if you are not a voter, you are liable to get very much worse treatment than the voters, even the law-breaking voters get. Now, the situation today then is that a home rule for Ireland is to take effect early next year or in the course of next year. But there is a part of Ireland which does not want home rule. There is a part of Ireland which prefers to be governed from London, There is the north of Ireland in the county of Ulster. For racial reasons, for religious reasons, for economic reasons, the majority of the people there do not want home rule at all. They call themselves loyalists, unionists, and they want to maintain the union with Great Britain in its present form. Directly the home rule bill passed. Directly it was perfectly clear that home rule was to be granted. These people began to revolt. They had a leader. A man who formed a part of the last conservative administration, Sir Edward Carson, a distinguished lawyer, a distinguished statesman. He is an Irishman. Sir Edward Carson came to, the, to be the leader of the Ulster Rebellion. He has advocated civil war. He has not only advocated civil war, he has urged the men of Ulster to drill and prepare to fight if civil war comes to pass. The first stage in this rebellion was the signing of a great declaration on behalf of the Union. It is rather notable that not only men signed that declaration, but women signed it also. The women of Ulster were invited to sign the declaration along with the men. And to those people who say that the province of women is quite apart from politics, and that women by nature take no interest in politics, I would like to say that more women signed that declaration than did men considerably more. While the last stage of the struggle and the struggle is coming to a head, Sir Edward Carson has been making speeches in which he has glorified in having broken the law. He has challenged the British government to arrest him, Arms have been shipped to Ireland, and there is not a club, a young men's club, a working men's club, or the middle class or the upper class men's club, where they are not drilling and preparing for civil war. The law has already been broken, because there has been considerable riot in the streets of Belfast, and lives even have been lost. And I want to say to you in this meeting how much have you heard of all this in the American newspapers? Have you heard loud condemnation from English newspapers echoed in your own papers? No. The newspapers and you have accepted, quite calmly, the fact that revolution is preparing in Ireland, and not one of you, whether you are a newspaper editor writing leading articles in your sanctum, or whether you are a businessman or a professional man, not one of you has questioned the rights of those men in Ulster although they are voters and have a constitutional means for getting redress for their grievances, the right of those men to resort to revolution if everything else fails. Well, if there's another picture, another contrast I want to draw. We have Sir Edward Carson preaching revolution and justifying bloodshed in defense of what he calls the rights of the manhood of Ulster, the right of having themselves governed in the way they prefer. He has not hesitated to advocate the shedding of blood, because he says it is quite worthwhile to shed blood of your own and other people's, in defense of your citizenship rights, in the defense of your having the right to choose the form of government you wish. Sir Edward Carson has not been arrested. Sir Edward Carson has not been charged with conspiracy. Sir Edward Carson has not been sent to jail. He has been making precisely the same kind of speeches that I made up to the month of March last, with this difference, that while he has justified the shedding of human blood in a revolution, I have always said that nothing would bring me to the point of claiming that we should destroy human life in the course of our woman's agitation. That is the only distinction between his speeches and mine, that he has advocated and justified the taking of life where I have always stopped short in my justification at property, at inanimate objects. I have always said human life is sacred, and in a woman's revolution we must respect human life. We stop short of injury to human life. Now to those men who say that women are better treated than men when they break the laws, to those people who say that there is no need for women to take the methods of revolution, I want to draw this contrast. Here is Sir Edward Carson, a man who, presumably by his education and training, ought to be more respectful of the law than persons who are not either fit to understand the laws or to vote for those who make them. You have Sir Edward Carson a chartered libertine going to and fro in England and in Ireland, making these speeches. Whereas you have me, a woman, arrested and charged and sentenced to a long term of penal servitude for doing precisely what he has done, although he has not had the justification that I have, because again I want to call to your attention to the point that Sir Edward Carson and his friends have the vote and therefore have the legitimate and proper ways of getting redress for their grievances whereas neither i nor any of the women have constitutional means whatever and no legitimate recognized methods of getting redress or our grievances except the methods of revolution and violence well now i want to argue with you as to whether our way is the right one i want to explain all these things that you have not understood I want to make you understand exactly what our plan of campaign has been, because I have always felt that if you could only make people understand, most people's hearts are in the right place, and most people's understandings are sound, and most people are more or less logical, if you could only make them understand. Now I want to come back to the point where I said, if the men of Harford had a grievance and had no vote to get their redress, if they felt that grievance sufficiently, they would be forced to adopt other methods. That brings me to an explanation of these methods that you have not been able to understand. I am going to talk later on about the grievances, but I want to, first of all, make you understand that this civil war carried on by women is not the hysterical manifestation which you thought it was, but was carefully and logically thought out. And I think when I have finished, you will say, admitted the grievance, admitted the strength of the cause, that we could not do anything else, that there was no other way, that we had either to submit to intolerable injustice and let the woman's movement go back and remain in a worse position than it was before we began, or we had to go on with these methods until victory was secured. And I want also to convince you that these methods are going to win because when you adopt the methods of revolution, there are two justifications which I feel are necessary or to be desired. The first is that you have good cause for adopting your methods in the beginning And secondly, that you have adopted methods which when pursued with sufficient courage and determination are bound in the long run to win. Now it would take too long to trace the course of militant methods as adopted by women. Because it is about eight years since the word militant was first used to describe what we were doing. It is about eight years since the first militant action was taken by women. It was not militant at all, except that it provoked militancy on the part of those who were opposed to it when women asked questions in political meetings and failed to get answers. They were not doing anything militant. To ask questions at political meetings is an acknowledged right of all people who attend public meetings. Certainly in my country, men have always done it, and I hope they do it in America because it seems to me that if you allow people to enter your legislatures without asking them any questions as to what they are going to do when they get there you are not exercising your citizen rights and your citizen duties as you ought at any rate in great britain it is a custom a time-honored one to ask questions of candidates for parliament and ask questions of members of the government no man was ever put out of a public meeting for asking a question until votes for women came into the political horizon. The first people who were put out of a political meeting for asking questions were women. They were brutally ill-used. They found themselves in jail before 24 hours had expired. But instead of the newspapers, which are largely inspired by the politicians, militancy and the reproach of militancy if reproach there is on the people who had assaulted the women, they actually said it was the women who were militant and very much to blame. How different the reasoning is that men adopt when they are discussing the cases of men and those of women. Had they been men who asked the questions and had those men been brutally ill-used you would have heard a chorus of reprobation on the part of the people towards those who refused to answer those questions. But as they were women who asked the questions, it was not the speakers on the platform who would not answer them who were to blame, or the ushers at the meeting. It was the poor women who had had their bruises and their knocks and their scratches and who were put into prison for doing precisely nothing but holding a protest meeting in the street after it was all over. However, we were called militant for doing that, and we were quite willing to accept the name because militancy for us is time-honored. You have the church militant, and in the sense of spiritual militancy, we were very militant indeed we were determined to press this question of the enfranchisement of women to the point where we were no longer to be ignored by the politicians as had been the case for 50 years. During which time women had their, had patiently used every means open to them to win their political enfranchisement. We found that all the fine phrases about freedom and liberty were entirely for male consumption and that they did not in any way apply to women when it was said taxation without representation is tyranny when it was taxation of men without representation is tyranny everybody quite calmly accepted the fact that women had to pay taxes and even were sent to prison if they failed to pay them quite right We found that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which is also a time-honored liberal principle, was again only for male consumption. Half of the people were entirely ignored. It was the duty of women to pay their taxes and obey the laws and look as pleasant as they could under the circumstances. In fact, every principle of liberty enunciated in any civilized country on earth with very few exceptions, were intended entirely for men. And when women tried to force the putting into practice of these principles for women, then they discovered they had come into a very unpleasant situation indeed. Now I am going to pass rapidly over all the incidents that happened after the first two women went to prison for having questions of cabinet ministers and come right up to the time when our militancy became real militancy, when we organized ourselves to an army base, when we determined if necessary to fight for our rights just as our forefathers had fought for theirs. Then people began to say that while they believed they had no criticism of militancy as militancy, while they thought it was quite justifiable for people to revolt against intolerable injustice, it was absurd and ridiculous for women to attempt it because women could not succeed. After all, the most practical criticism of our militancy coming from men has been the argument that it could not succeed. They would say, we would be with you if you could succeed but it is absurd for women who are the weaker sex for women who have not got the control of any large interests for women who have got very little money who have peculiar duties as women which handicaps them extremely for example the duty of caring for children it is absurd for women to think they can ever win their rights by fighting you had far better give it up and submit Because there is, you have always been subject, and you will always be. Well now, that really became the testing time. Then we women determined to show the world that women handicapped as women are, can still fight and can still win. And now I want to show you how this plan of ours was carefully thought out. Even our attacks on private property, which has been so much misunderstood. I have managed in London to make audiences of businessmen who came into the meetings very, very angry with us indeed, some of whom had their telephonic communication cut off for several hours and had not been able to even get telegrams from their stockbrokers in cities far distant, who naturally came to our meetings in a very angry frame of mind, understand the situation. And if it has been possible to make them understand, if some of them even fairly got even fairly enthusiastic about our methods. It ought to be possible, Mrs. Hepburn, for me to explain the situation to an audience in Hartford who, after all, are far enough off to be able to see unlike men in our own country who are not able to see wood for trees. I would like to suggest that if later on, while I am explaining these matters to you, there comes into the mind of any man or woman in the audience some better plan for getting what we want out of an obstinate government, I would be thankful and grateful if that person, man or woman, would tell me of some better plan than ours for dealing with the situation. Here we have a political system where no reforms can get onto the statute book of the old country unless it is initiated by the government of the country, by the cabinet, By the handful of people who really govern the country. It doesn't matter whether you have practically every member of parliament on your side. You cannot get what you want unless the cabinet initiate legislation, a situation by which the private member has become, almost of no account at all, the ordinary private member of parliament. He may introduce bills, but he knows himself that he is only registering a pious opinion of a certain number of electors in his constituency. It may be his own, but that pious opinion will never find its way onto the statute book of his country until the government in power, the Prime Minister and his colleagues, introduces a government measure to carry that reform. Well then the whole problem of people who want reform is to bring enough political pressure to bear upon the government to lead them to initiate, to draft a bill and introduce it in the first instance into the House of Commons, force it through the House of Commons, press it through the House of Lords, and finally land it safely having passed through the shoals and rapids of the Parliamentary River safely on the Statute Book as an act of Parliament. Well combinations of voters have tried for generations even with the power of the vote to get their reforms registered in legislation and have failed you have to get your cause made a first-class measure you have to make pressing that pressing that it has become politically dangerous for the government to neglect that question any longer so politically expedient for them to do it that they realize they cannot present themselves to the country at the first general election unless it has been done. Well, that was the problem we had to face, and we faced it, a mere handful of women. Whether you like our methods or not, we have succeeded in making women's suffrage one of the questions which even cabinet ministers now admit cannot indefinitely be neglected. It must be dealt with within a very short period of time. No other methods than ours would have brought about that result. You may have sentimental articles in magazines by the Chancellor, who seems to be able to spare time from his ordinary avocations to write magazine articles, telling you that militancy is a drag on the movement for women's suffrage. But our answer to that is, methinks our gentleman doth press, protest too much because, until militancy became to be known, neither Mr. Lloyd George, nor any statesman, no, nor any member of Parliament, ever thought it was necessary to mention the subject of women's suffrage at all. Now they mention it constantly, to tell us what damage we have done to our cause. They are all urging us to consider the serious position into which we have brought the cause of women's suffrage. Well, now... Let me come to the situation as we find it we felt we had to rouse the public to such a point that they would say to the government you must give women the vote we had to get the electors we had to get the business interests we had to get the professional interests we had to get the men of leisure all unitedly saying to the government relieve the strain of the situation and give women the vote And that is a problem that I think the most astute politician in this meeting would find very difficult. We have done it. We are doing it. Every day. And I think when you take that fact into consideration, you will realize why we have been attacking private property. Why we have been attacking the property of men so absorbed in their business that they generally forget to vote in ordinary elections why we have attacked the pleasures of men whose whole life is spent in a round of pleasure and who think politics so dull and so beneath their distinguished ossification that they hardly know which party is in power. All these people have had to be moved in order to bring enough pressure to bear upon the government to compel them to deal with the question of women's suffrage. And now that it in itself is an explanation. There is a homely English proverb which may help to clear the situation, which is this quote, You cannot rouse the britisher unless you touch his pocket. End quote. That is literally true. Perhaps you now can understand why we women thought we must attack the thing that was of most value in modern life in order to make these people wake up and realize that women want the vote and that things were going to be very uncomfortable until women got the vote. Because it is not by making people comfortable you get things in practical life. It is by making them uncomfortable. That is a homely truth that all of us have to learn. I don't know, Mrs. Hepburn, whether I have used the domestic illustration in Harford, but it is a very good one. It is quite worth using again. You have two babies, very hungry and wanting to be fed. One baby is a patient baby and waits indefinitely until its mother is ready to feed it. The other baby is an impatient baby and cries lustily, screams and kicks, and makes everybody unpleasant until it is fed. Well, we know perfectly well which baby is attended to first that is the whole history of politics. Putting sentiment aside, people who really want reforms learn that lesson very quickly. It is only the people who are quite content to go on advocating them indefinitely who play the part of the patient baby in politics. You have to make more noise than anybody else. You have to make yourself more obtrusive than anybody else. You have to fill all the papers more than anybody else. In fact, You have to be there all the time and see that they do not snow you under if you are really going to get your reform realized. That is what we women have been doing, and in the course of our desperate struggle, we have had to make a great many people very uncomfortable. Now one woman was arrested on an occasion when a great many windows were broken in London as a protest against a piece of trickery on the part of the government, which will be incredible in 50 years when the history of the movement is read. Women broke some windows as a protest. They broke a good many shopkeepers' windows. They broke the windows of shopkeepers where they spent most of their money when they brought their hats and their clothing. They also broke the windows of many of the clubs, the smart clubs in Piccadilly. One of the many clubs was the guard club. While the ordinary army man is not much in politics, but he very often, because of his aristocratic and social connections, has considerable influence if he would use it. One woman broke the windows of the guard club, and when she broke those windows, she stood there quietly until the guard hall porter came out and seized her and held her, until the policemen came to take her to prison. A number of the guards came out to see the kind of woman it was who had broken their windows, and they saw there a quiet woman. She happened to be an actress, a woman who had come into our militant movement because she knew the difficulties and dangers and temptations of the actress's life, of how badly paid she is, what her private sorrows are and her difficulties. And so she had come into the militant movement to get votes for actresses as quickly as possible so that through the vote, they could secure better conditions. Some of the guards, I think men who had never known what it was to earn a living, who knew nothing of the difficulties of a man's life, let alone the difficulties of a woman's life, came out and they said, why did you break our windows? We have done nothing, she said it is because you have done nothing I have broken your windows. And perhaps out of that woman's breaking of windows has come this new movement of men of my country, where we find distinguished men who fought through the Boer War, are drilling now like Sir Edward Carson in Belfast, drilling men in order to form a bodyguard to protect the militant woman probably that broken window of the guard club did a good deal to rouse men to the defense of women and to the injustice of their situation well then the shopkeepers who could not understand why we should break the shopkeepers windows why should we alienate the sympathy the sympathy of the shopkeepers Well, there is the other side of the question, gentlemen, why should the shopkeepers alienate the sympathy of their customers by refusing to help them get political power, some power to make the condition of the woman who helps to earn the shopkeeper's money by serving in his shop easier than it is at the present time? Those women broke shopkeepers' windows, and what was the situation just at the beginning of the winter season when all the new winter hats and coats were being shown? The shopkeepers had to barricade all their windows with wood, and nobody could see the new winter fashions. Well there again is an impossible situation. The shopkeeper cannot afford to quarrel with his customers. And we have today far more practical sympathy amongst the shopkeepers of London than we ever had when we were quiet, gentle, ladylike suffragettes, asking nicely for a vote. Then there were the men of pleasure, or the businessmen, who were so busy earning money during the week that all they could think of when the week came to an end was recreation, and even the great recreation in England today is playing golf. Everywhere on Saturday, you see men streaming away into the country for the weekend to play golf. They so monopolize the golf links that they have made a rule that although the ladies may play golf of all the week, the golf weeks are entirely reserved for men on Saturday and Sunday. And you have this spectacle of the exodus of men from London into the country to fill up the weekend with playing golf. They are not, ladies, putting their heads together, thinking how best they can govern the country for you, what good laws they can make for you and for the world. They are there, all of them, getting their health, and I do not blame them for it, at the weekend. Well, we attacked the golf links. We wanted to make them think, and if you had been in London and taken a Sunday paper, you would have read, especially if you played golf, with consternation, that all the beautiful greens that had taken years to make had been cut up or destroyed with an acid or made almost impossible to play upon the Friday night. And in many cases, there were going to be important matches on the Saturday afternoon and Sunday. Just to give you an illustration of the effectiveness of these methods in waking the Britister up, in conveying to him that women want the vote and are going to get it even if we do not adopt quite the men's method in order to do so, I was staying at a little house in the country on a golf links, a house that had been loaned to me to use whenever I could get away from my work. And several times in the course of that Sunday morning, I got telephone calls from gentlemen who were prominent members of golf clubs in that vicinity. It so happened that the golf links where I was spending the weekend had not been touched. Those links had been respected because some of the most prominent women suffrages happened to be the members of the club and those women who destroyed the greens, I don't know who they were but it was no doubt done by women, spared the links where these women whom they admired and respected played well then that morning i was rung up over and over again by excited gentlemen who begged that those golf links should be spared saying i don't know whether your fathers know that we are all suffragettes on our committee we are entirely in favor of women's suffrage and i said well don't you think you had better tell mr asquith so because if you are suffragists and do nothing Naturally, you will only add to the indignation of the women. If you really want your golf links spared, you had better intimate to Mr. Asquith that you think it is high time he put his principles into practice and give women the vote. There were another gentleman who rang up and said, The members of our committee, who are all suffragists, are seriously considering turning all the women members out of the club if this sort of thing goes on. Well, I said, don't you think you, your greater safety is to keep the women in the club as a sort of insurance policy against anything happening to your links? But this experience will show you that if you really want to get anything done, it is not so much a matter of whether you alienate sympathy. Sympathy is a very unsatisfactory thing if it is not practical sympathy. It does not matter to the practical suffragists whether she alienates sympathy that was never of any use to her. What she wants is to get something practical done, and whether it is done out of sympathy, or whether it is done out of fear, or whether it is done because you want it to be comfortable again and not be worried in this way, doesn't particularly matter, so long as you get it done. We had enough of sympathy for 50 years, it never brought us anything, and we would rather have an angry man going to the government and saying, my business is interfered with and I won't submit to its being interfered with any longer because you won't give women the vote, than to have a gentleman come onto our platforms year in and year out and talk about his ardent sympathy with women's suffrage. Now then. Let me come to the more serious matters and to some of the more serious recent happenings. You know when you have war many things happen that all of us deplore. We fought a great war not very long ago in South Africa. Women were expected to face with equanimity the loss of those dearest to them in warfare. They were expected to submit to being impoverished. They were expected to pay the war tax exactly like the men for a war about which The women were never consulted at all. When you think of the object of that war, it really makes some of us feel very indignant at the hypocrisy of some of our critics. That war was fought ostensibly to get equal rights for all whites in South Africa. The whole country went wild. We had a disease which was called Mafika because when the victory was declared, everybody in the country, except a few people who tried to keep their heads steady, went absolutely mad with gratification at the sacrifice of thousands of human beings in the carrying on of that war. That war was fought to get votes for white men in South Africa a few years sooner than they would have had them under existing conditions. And it was justified on those grounds to get a voice in the government of South Africa for men who would have had that voice in five or six years if they had waited. That was considered ample justification for one of the most costly and bloody wars of modern times, very well, then, what have you very well then, what you have wherefore things happen, people suffer the non-combatants suffer as well as the combatants, and so it happens in civil war when your forefathers threw the tea into Boston Harbor, a good many women had to go without their tea. It has always seemed to me an extraordinary thing that you did not follow it up by throwing the whiskey overboard you sacrificed the women and there is a good deal of warfare for which men take a great deal of glorification which has involved more practical sacrifice on women than it has on any man it always has been so the grievances of those who have got power the influence of those who have got power commands a great deal of attention But the wrongs and the grievances of those people who have no power at all are apt to be absolutely ignored. That is the history of humanity right from the beginning. Well, in our civil war, people have suffered, but you cannot make omelettes without breaking eggs. You cannot have civil war without damage to something. The great thing to see that no more damage is done than is absolutely necessary. That you do just as much as will arouse enough feeling to bring about peace, to bring about an honorable peace for the combatants, and that is what we have been doing. Within the last few days you have read, I don't know how accurate, the news cables are to America. I always take them with a grain of salt. But you have read within the last few days that some more empty houses have been burned, that a cactus house has been destroyed, and some valuable plants have suffered in that house, that some pavilion at a pleasure ground has also been burned. Well, it is quite possible that it has happened. I knew before I came here that for one whole day, telegraphic and telephonic communication between Gasco and London has been entirely suspended. We do more in England in our civil war without the sacrifice of a single life than they did in the war of the Balkan states when they had the siege of Andropole, because during the whole of that siege, in the course of which thousands of people were killed and houses were shelled and destroyed, telegraphic communication was continuous the whole time. If there had been a stockbroker in Andropole who wanted to communicate with a customer in London, he could have done it. There might have been little delay, but he was able to do it without the loss of a single life in our war. In this effort to rouse businessmen, to compel the government to give us the vote because they are the people who can do it in the last resort, we entirely prevented stockbrokers in London from telegraphing to stockbrokers in Glasgow, and vice versa for the whole day. I'm not going to tell you how it was done. I'm not going to tell you how the women got to the mains and cut the wires, but it was done, it was done and it was proved to the authorities that weak women, suffrage women as we are supposed to be, had enough ingenuity to create a situation of that kind. Now I ask you, if women can do that, is there any limit to what we can do except the limit we put upon ourselves? If you are dealing with an industrial revolution, if you get the women and men of one class rising up against the men and women of another class, you can locate the difficulty. If there is a great industrial strike, You know exactly where the violence is and every man knows exactly how the warfare is going to be waged but in our war against the government you cannot locate it you can take mrs hepburn and myself on this platform and now without being told how could you tell that mrs hepburn is a non-militant and that i am a militant absolutely impossible if any gentleman who is the father of daughters in this meeting went into his home and looked around at his wife and daughters If he lived in England and was an Englishman, he couldn't tell whether some of his daughters were militants or non-militants. When his daughters went out to post a letter, he couldn't tell if they went harmlessly out to make a tennis engagement at that pillar box by posting a letter. Or whether they went to put some corrosive matter in that would burn all the letters up inside of that box. We wear no mark. We belong to every class. We permeate every class of the community from the highest to the lowest and so you see in the women's civil war the dear men of my country are discovering it is absolutely impossible to deal with you cannot locate it and you cannot stop it put them in prison they said that will stop it but it didn't stop it they put women in prison for long terms of imprisonment For making a nuisance of themselves that was the expression when they took petitions in their hands to the door of the house of commons and they thought by sending them to prison giving them a day's imprisonment would cause them all to settle down again and so there would be no further trouble but it didn't happen so at all instead of the woman giving up More women did it, and more and more and more women did it, until there were 300 women at a time who had not broken a single law, only making a nuisance of themselves, as the politicians say. Well, then they thought they must go a little farther, and so then they began imposing punishments of a very serious kind. The judge who sentenced me last May to three years penal servitude for certain speeches in which I had accepted responsibility for acts of violence done by other women, said that if I could say I was sorry, if I could promise not to do it again, that he would revise the sentence and shorten it, because he admitted that it was a very heavy sentence, especially as the jury recommended me to Mercy because of the purity of my motives and he said he was giving me a determinate sentence, a sentence that would convince me that I should give up my evil ways and would also deter other women from imitating me. But it hadn't that effect at all. So far from having it that effect, more and more women have been doing these things and I had incited them to do and were more determined in doing them so that the long determinate sentence had no effect in crushing the agitation. Well then, they felt they must do something else, and they began to legislate. I want to tell men in this meeting that the British government, which is not remarkable for having very mild laws to administer, has passed more stringent laws to deal with this agitation than it ever found necessary during all the history of political agitation in my country. They were able to deal with the revolutionaries of the Chartist time, they were able to deal with the trade union agitation, they were able to deal with the revolutionaries later on when the Reform Acts of 1867 and 1884 were passed, but the ordinary law has not sufficed to curb insurgent women. They have had to pass special legislation and now they are on the point of admitting that this special legislation has absolutely failed. They had to dip back into the Middle Ages to find a means of repressing the women in revolt and the whole history shows how futile it is for men who have been considered able statesmen to deal with dissatisfied women who are determined to win their citizenship and who will not submit to government until their consent is obtained. That is the whole point of our agitation. The whole argument with the anti-suffragists or even the critical suffragist man is this, that you cannot govern human beings without their consent. They have said to us government rests upon force. The women haven't force, so they must submit. Well, we are showing them that government does not rest upon force at all. It rests upon consent. As long as women consent to be unjustly governed, they can be. But directly women say, we withhold our consent. We will not be governed any longer So long as that government is unjust. Not by the forces of civil war can you govern the very weakest women. You can kill that woman, but she escapes you then. You cannot govern her. And that is, I think, a most valuable demonstration we have been making to the world. We have been proving in our own personhood that government does not rest upon force. It rests upon consent. As long as people consent to government, it is perfectly easy to govern. But directly they refuse, then no power on earth can govern a human being, however feeble, who withholds his or her consent. And all of the strange happenings that you have read about over here have been manifestations of a refusal to consent on the part of the woman. When they put us in prison at first, simply for taking petitions, we submitted. We allowed them to dress us in prison clothes. We allowed them to put us in solitary confinement. We allowed them to treat us as ordinary criminals and put us amongst the most degraded of those criminals. And we were very glad of the experience because out of that experience we learned of the need for prison reform. We learned of the fearful mistakes that men of all nations have made when it is a question of dealing with human beings. We learned of some of the appalling evils of our so-called civilization that we could have had, learned, had not learned in any other way, except by going through the police courts of our country. In the prison, fans that take you up to prison and right through that prison experience. It was valuable experience and we were glad to get it. But there came a time when we said, it is unjust. To send political agitators to prison in this way for merely asking for justice and we will not submit any longer. And I am always glad to remind American audiences that two of the first women that came to the conclusion that they would not submit to unjust imprisonment any longer were two American women who are doing some of the most splendid suffrage work in America today up in Washington. I think they are making things extremely lively for the politicians up there. And I don't know whether every American woman knows what those two women working in conjunction with others are doing for the enfranchisement of American women at this time. I'm always proud to think that Miss Lucy Burns and Miss Alice Paul served their suffrage apprenticeship in the militant ranks in England. And they were not slow about it either because one of them came, I believe it was, from Heidelberg traveling all night to take part in one of those little processions to parliament with a petition. She was arrested and thrown into prison with about 20 others and that group of 20 women were the first women who decided that they would not submit themselves to the degradation of wearing prison clothes. And they refused, and they were almost the first to adopt the hunger strike as a protest against the criminal treatment. They forced their way out of prison. Well, then it was that women began to withhold their consent. I have been in audiences where I have seen men smile when they heard the words hunger strike. And yet I think there are very few men today who would be prepared to adopt a hunger strike for any cause. It is only people who feel an intolerable sense of oppression who would adopt a means of that kind. I know of no people who did it before us